Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Morganum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing chapter 22. This is part 3. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. Well Pete, welcome back. We finished last podcast uh, with the Jacob Bomer section and uh, we're back to Professor James. Yeah, he's the latest rock star in Uspensky's pantheon, isn't he? He's moved away from all of the others. Hinton, gone. Kant, gone. And now we have a new hero. We have a new hero of the modern age. This is a new music. This is this is like the punk rocker who's just destroyed everything that went before him. And we now have Professor James as Johnny Rotten of Uspensky's world. <laughs> Exactly so. He is so fickle, isn't he? I mean, he is he is so shallow, Spensky. He will move from one hero to another in the blink of an <laughs> eye. And if, if they're of any use to him in, in the future, he will just drag them back drag in on them back stage in, yeah. and, and, say, and yeah. expect them to put on a show. <laughs> Absolutely. So Professor James is uh, front and centre, spotlight on him, and Spensky's quite thrilled with the way Professor James seems to bring all the uh, various religions together to explain how uh, mysticism is well entrenched in in all of them, and and he does go through each one in quite a bit of detail, Christian mysticism. Yeah, I like this because I've been saying this all along, that all religions have a mystical side to them, and this is the bit that people don't look at. They have been steered away from the mystical aspects on purpose, but they don't even try to find it. They don't even they don't even question that um, actually this religion stuff is a bit shallow uh, and it's contradictory because the people who are forcing us to do it. Let's think of Victorian England. Everybody had to be a muscular Christian and go to church every Sunday. And you'd be hearing things from the pulpit about the meek inheriting the earth and everything, while you're looking at, at one side to the rich landowners and the mill owners and the and everybody that's richer than you, and thinking, oh, is this, oh hang on, they come here the same as I do, and they hear all this, well, how come that's so different? They should be, if they were paying attention, they should be throwing their money at the poor like me. But they're not. They don't. And they've got really strange <laughs> ways of interpreting these very unambiguous words in the Bible. I don't get... They never had that thought, did they? Or if they did, they kept it to themselves. Instead of saying there must be something more behind these words, if they did, or anybody that did that, would there find mysticism. And the same goes for every religion, which is where we are now with Professor James. So, yeah, I love this bit because this is exactly the truth. Religions aren't all just stupid and be just stupid stories and you're an idiot for believing them, as the atheists, agnostics and the smart-ass New Agers and pagans would have you believe. I love pagans that talk about um, organised religion. Oh, it's the Bible. It's just fairy stories, isn't it? I think... Yes, tell me more about Thor, Odin, Freya, <laughs> and, all, and, all of, and all of the stories that you have in your religion, Rhiannon and Fwil, 
and so on, and Harry Andrade. Tell me more. You know, <laughs> exactly so. But there is mysticism behind those stories too, by the way. I should tell you that in my experience, virtually none of the New Ages and pagans ever get anywhere near. But Professor James does. Professor James does. So I'm, I'm with Professor James. Yeah, and so is Spensky. And I think the thing is, it's it's interesting. He has a lot of quoting, and we just certainly don't have time to go through all of it. So we'll probably end up just pulling the eyes out like we have. Well, yeah, I'll go with you on this one, because otherwise we would end up doing this in about eight parts. Yeah, Spensky starts with Professor James's dwelling on Christian mysticism. So we're, we're mm. starting right right into Christian mysticism. And these are looking at the certain experiences of Christian saints. So just like you said, you know, at the moment, if you just look at face value, they're just stories. But Professor James is sort of pulling them into the spotlight and saying, well, they're not just stories. They, they have some mysticism uh, around mm. them. And uh, so we start off with um, St. Teresa. Now, I, I'm not a Christian, so I don't really understand who these saints are, but uh, obviously... She's a dead she, famous bird. She was, like, she was like the rock star of mysticism in her day. She was like oh, Paloma. She, she was the Paloma Faith of <laughs> of, mysti- <laughs> of Christian mysticism of her day. Anyway, I was just going to say it's this. It's this great. This first line. It was granted me to perceive in one instant. Notice in one instant how all things are seen and contained in God. In other words, she had that flash that the Buddhist calls Sartori. This flash of knowing knowing everything she would have had the experience of the ocean being in the drop while the drop is in the ocean she would have seen everything and the connectivity and then it's gone it was a flash this is what happens you know this is what we get and that that has been a theme all the way through this it has isn't it yeah it's it's not something that lasts well it can last but it's not something that usually lasts is what what we're hearing this this thing sartori isn't but what you can do then is develop your practice if you if you if you decide to 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 follow this and and actually want more of this it will be granted to you and then you can achieve this state of nirvana as the hindus would would call it interesting isn't With, it yeah, but this this is interesting because it does come back to this flash, which, like you said, has been a constant theme, and it is, it is a constant of the experience of people that search for a knowledge and an understanding, and critically, an experience of the reality behind the illusion. Mm. For most for most people, it comes as a flash, where in this like milli milli part of a second, you experience. And I can only say say it in this one way: everything. She she uses the word God because she's Saint Teresa, but by God she means everything. I don't know if it's easy to get your head around that. All I can see when I when when that is said is that there are no words to describe it. It is something that you just have this sudden knowing of something. I can I just quote? Can I just requote the the end of the paragraph that yeah, what she's do, actually said? Because she yes. said, I did not perceive them in their proper form. Because she's talking about how in an instant she saw all things are seen and contained in God. And she says, I did not perceive them in their proper form. And nevertheless, the view I had of them was of a sovereign clearness and has remained vividly impressed upon my soul. It is one of the most signal of all the graces which the Lord has granted me. 
The view was so subtle and delicate that the understanding cannot grasp it. In other words, she's now having the problem that everybody else, including Jacob Boma and everybody else we've come across has in as much as you can't tell people what it was because the language doesn't contain the structure or the form that allows you to describe it. You have to have been there. And you can't even tell yourself from what no. I'm reading. You yeah, can't even tell that's yourself. exactly right. You, you can only kind of know it as a knowing. We've, we've got to continue with her. Yeah, well, because the next bit. We've got, we've got to continue because, yeah, there's a phrase yeah. in there that really, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Yeah, the, li- the, the, the limpid diamond. Yeah, the so- she goes on to tell, Professor James writes, how it was as if the deity was an enormous and sovereignly limpid diamond in which all of our actions were contained in such a way that their full sinfulness appeared evident as never before. Forget the sinfulness in this in the way that you've been taught sinful to mean. Would so we mean? need to we need to pull this apart because yeah, I know I, I know we so, wanted yeah. to go through, but we do. Ah, let's you, just you, let's just pull it apart. I think yeah, you're right. I, when I read the word sinfulness, I thought, no, that doesn't mean what it didn't ring true. What I'm thinking it means is the illusion. Yes, it does. It means anything that is not this sovereignly limpid diamond, which contains all, anything that's outside of that is the illusion. And the illusion is sin. And we should stop thinking of sin as being something that will consign you to hell and it's the wrong way of living. Sin, as a word, as it's used here and as it was originally used, does not have a moral connotation. No. It's describing a state of being. It's a state of being that that is not of the, the reality of God. Mm. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And so what she's sort of saying is that she, I guess in that instant, realised that everything that was the world is just an illusion and that the reality is so beautiful, so in awe of it. I'm going to suggest that she has come closer than anybody we've come across as we've gone through this book in describing the nature of reality, which she calls God, which I would like to call God because it's an easier thing to say than the nature of reality or or the or the the divine source of all creation, or just source, which frankly is something that I put on my chips. Well, God works for me. Yeah. So yeah. So you know that that phrase, enormous and sovereignly limpid diamond. Let me let's go through that limpid, unmoving, and in a state of infinite relaxation. No stress. No expectation. I want you to think of yourself and see how relaxed you think you can get. At some some part of you will be staying upright or fixed to a, the floor as you as you lie down. You'll be aware of certain connections that you have. How relaxed do you think you can actually get? You can get, I mean, people can get very, 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 very relaxed, but they're always in a state of readiness for action. They're in a state of, I don't know, um, potential i think is the word yeah you're right yeah so so if you were if you were a physicist you would describe potential energy uh, of an object that was being held and suspended above the ground and when that object was let go the potential en- energy would immediately become kinetic energy as it's falls to the floor okay so but this the the reality is unmoving 
but it's not unmoving in a tensed up state, ready to pounce. It is literally happy with what it is. It is limpid. I love it. This is a great description. Yeah, that is a great description. And, and because a little further on, in other descriptions, they talk about the not doing any action, no action. So this yeah. limpid is, is well, reflecting I've always, that. I can remember, I've, I've mentioned before that people, you know, about these people that, that are constantly wanting to raise their vibration. I'm saying, well, this this shouldn't be aspirational because if you're vibrating at all, no matter no matter how high or low your vibration, you're still in the illusion. Vibration is motion. It's You describe vibration by drawing this jagged sawtooth line, which represents your frequency. Mm. And it has a trough and a peak, so it's... Yeah, yeah. It's, so it has a duality. It is not limpid, and it's not unmoving. You know, it's, it is... It is in vibration, by the very definition of the word, is active. It's an active principle. Oh, I've got news, and I've also got news for you. It's a very masculine principle. So all of you New Age goddess-worshipping feminist warriors... Uh, you're turning into a bloke by acknowledging your vibrational qualities. Not that there's anything wrong with that, <laughs> to, to quote Seinfeld. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Yes, yeah, Seinfeld. Yeah. Well, just, just, I'm just, I'm just saying because obviously I, I do like to poke holes in these people that constantly, yeah. constantly in my face on the internet, telling me how I should be doing this, that, and the other. And it's like you don't even know what you're doing. So shut up. Um, so, so, but but Saint Teresa does know what she's doing. So she does. Uh, I think the other the other thing that I liked about that sentence was enormous. Yeah, I mean, big, it's not just big or large; it's no. enormous. I think we can retranslate that and say limitless, because she's talking about yeah. the infinite, the infinite yeah. divine that is limpid. <laughs> it's just great. A limpid diamond. And so, sovereign, you know. Sovereignly. No, let's let's move uh, uh, into that word as well, because that word needs to be pulled apart. We do use the word sovereign in this illusion to discuss a monarch, a king, something that's got power. Power to do what? Power over us, usually, because we're not sovereign, are we? We're not considered to be sovereign in this world. When that word is used, we're not. There are instances yeah, of people who, who are now trying to fight the new world order who say, we should become a sovereign man. And I'm not going to go into what those people mean by it. But the fact of it is that, again, it means something different. Here, the sovereign means untouchable. In other words, not subject to anything, not subject to an expectation of doing something, not, not sovereign to um, the will of itself or anything else. In other words, it is untouchable. Mm, yeah. This is very yeah. difficult to explain, but this is what's meant by sovereign in the way that St. Teresa is using it here. She means that this thing doesn't have power over us. If it had power over us, right, it would be sitting there watching us. Watching would be an activity, in which case it would no longer be limpid. True. Yes. What it is, and this is the interesting thing, is the illusion has existed so that it has experience of itself. Do you get that, right? Yeah, via us and everything else. Yeah, but, we, there, but there is no us. 
No. We are it. We are a drop of it. And it is in us as we are in it. Yes. And we are the experience. Yes. As opposed to, you know, as opposed to separate. We are just experience yeah and again we're struggling to explain this in language but i think we're getting close we are well we are getting close and um i i I, the next part where um teresa talks about this and i'd be interested in your point of view she said in what uh that god or our lord made me comprehend in what way it is that one god can be in three persons now i think she's talking about the father son holy ghost trinity yeah with that, yeah. um, which I never really understood anyway. So, how about this? There are these levels of the of reality. So, Father is the limpid, sovereignly limp, enormous, sovereignly limpid diamond. Right. The Son is us that comes down into this three D illusion. That the aspect of it that that is the three D experience because it is everything. And the Holy Ghost is everything in between. It could actually be like the Akasha, um, limitlessly small. That's shall we call it barrier between the limpid diamond and everything else. The Akasha okay. is the the Akasha is how it receives the experience of everything below upon which all is written. You know that I've worked with the Akasha, so yeah, yeah. So if that's the way she's interpreting it, then it would make sense when she says God can be in three persons. Because we all have every every one of those aspects. We're all Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The if you if you bring the the ocean going into the drop as That's well as the drop going into say. the ocean yeah. here, you can actually bring that that little one and bring it into Saint Teresa, and we suddenly get a, a greater understanding of of what she means and what the ocean in the drop means. They both complement each other here. Spensky's great in the way that he's put this at this section of the book. It's fabulous. It is. He's and look, he's really shown that he's drawn his research, shall we say, from from everywhere. So you know, it it, it really um, it's interesting because as we've discussed before, these religions started in different parts of the world that didn't have the internet to have a chat about things. Like no. you know, oddly enough, they they have come up with the same thing. Hmm, I wonder how yeah. that happened. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the truth, and the truth is the Correct. same no matter which part you go to. But I lo- can I can I just finish with Saint Teresa? Yeah, please do. I think this is divine. I think it's gorgeous. It says, now when I think of the Holy Trinity or hear it spoken of, I understand how the three adorable persons form only one God, and I experienced an unspeakable happiness. The, the ocean into the so world. I yeah but you know this this is like she's had the experience notice she's had the experience of it and that's how so now I, I do want to to point out that as Professor James is showing us behind the shallow words of a religion there is this mysticism so people talk of the Father Son of the Holy Ghost the Holy Trinity in other words and they say it as though they as though you don't have it's quite obvious what that means whether you believe it or not it's neither here nor there but actually professor james is saying look at saint Teresa's description of the father son and the holy ghost this is the mystical element of christianity language has always been inadequate to describe the mystical experience but i'm going to suggest that that religions organized religions have 
gone out of their way to keep people away from the reality and the truth. But St. Teresa has actually had the experience and comes back and says, you know, this Holy Trinity that I grew up and you were talking about ever since I was a little girl and you forced me to go to church. Um, and I'm supposed to believe that, you know, there's a there's a father sitting over there on his throne in heaven and the son sits at the right side and the Holy Ghost goes, no, God knows where. But uh, uh, actually, that's not what it is. That phrase is describing a reality that you have to experience. And my God, I have. And it is wonderful and it's beautiful. Blissful. Actually. Yeah. Uh, so I, I really like this. The fact that now we're taking the shallow phrases of shallow religion and finding the absolute depth that underpins it. And, you know, for, for anybody that's seeking a spiritual path, yeah, to throw throw um, the Bible into the fire and say, oh, it's just fairy stories. Well, that's why you'll never achieve whatever it is you think you're trying to achieve, because you're too stupid and shallow and arrogant to actually have a look at what that is. Because there it is. Yeah, and and it rings true. The you know, as Spensky's pointed out before, to in order to experience out other than this three dimensional illusion, you have to actually let go of that idol of duality, that idol of the three dimensional uh, experience. And this is what I think Saint Teresa is trying to explain. That you know, as you said, they're not really three people sitting there. Yeah. But but most people imagine it to be that. Well, that's why I said to you in the beginning, I do not understand this Father, Son, Holy Ghost concept. It just doesn't doesn't make any sense to but me. You can you can understand. I mean, just a quick side side issue. The Renaissance didn't help because the Renaissance put paintings on walls and in churches that actually make people believe the disreality, the unreality, the falseness, the illusion. Because you're a peasant going to church. In the in medieval times, that the real and all you see is the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and the priest at the front talks about the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and to you, it's three people. What did the Holy Ghost look like in these paintings? I I, I can see the Son and the Father, but I, I've never seen the Holy Ghost depicted in a painting. Oh, I I would have to go and have a look at them now. They, they'll be in different. They're, they're in very different ways. And remember, the Holy Ghost is the ineffable part, the the the, the bit that you can't describe or explain. <laughs> they can't paint it either but, well uh, they have tried and you'll find angelic forces there and then sometimes the the art historians um, that, that only exist to have a label put on what they see um, will say oh this, this is obviously Saint what's his name but sometimes it may not be whatever the heck because, because there's a lot of symbolic meaning but let's move moving on all right, so we're moving on uh, with Professor James, and we're now talking about the mystics of the Greek Orthodox Church. So still, still in uh, you know Christianity, yeah. but more into the the original types of of Christianity, the Orthodox. Yes, well, this you know obviously the Greek the Greek Orthodox um, refused to become Catholic, and 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 that's why they are Orthodox. Remember, from the Orthodox churches. Catholicism was considered to be a heresy. <laughs> you know, it's like, we, hang on, you want us to believe what? You want us to do what? Uh, no, no, thank you. Uh, we've been doing this for a bit longer than you, and we're going to do it our way. But I just think there's something funny, because Professor James, remember, Professor James is not going to be a stupid peasant. He's not going to be like a simple woman, or not even a four-year-old child, or a cunning savage. He's a clever guy, right? He is, he is an academic and an intellectual. 
And when Professor James is describing the um, religious books of the Greek Orthodox Church, which come under this title, The Love of the Good, even he says that it comprises five large and formidable volumes. Even somebody <laughs> like Professor James finds this hard going. <laughs> I found that highly amusing. I mean, I know I, I am a simple fool myself, but I found that highly amusing. That yeah, Even Professor James is going, whew, you, you, you're going to have to have your wits about you if you want to take this one on. <laughs> but he has. He has given us I know he has, several examples. He, <laughs> so he's, yeah. he's, done us, he's done us a solid. <laughs> yeah, he has. He, he's done the hard yards for us, you know. He really has. And so he's uh, he's given us some examples from of profound and fine mysticism from the book called Superconsciousness and the Paths to Its Attainment by Lodzeski, and it was in Russian. So there you go. This is the, well because the Greek Orthodox, you know, filtered its way up through Eastern Europe and became the Russian Orthodox as well. They are they are the yeah they are the same root basically. Yes. So I love this because he's put an analogy in here from this. Uh, this book about the spokes of a wheel and it's it's an analogy of the relationship between God and the lives of men Mm. basically saying that you know God's at the center of the wheel like the the hub and the spokes are radiating out from that and that's the lives of men and the wheel I'm I'm saying is is probably the world the, the outside the circumference part so he's saying that like the, the closer you get to the hub when you're seeking God, the closer you are to God. And the further you go from the hub out to the outside wheel, the more separate you become, not just from God, but from each other. Like your lives well, you know, I, become yeah, yeah, more yeah. separate. I'm going to also suggest something else there. Um, if a wheel is turning, which part of it's moving faster? Okay, the centre of the wheel... When it does a full a full turn, it's done a three hundred and sixty degree. It's 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 only moved about an inch, whereas the circumference of the wheel has had to do in exactly the same time, because remember a point on the circumference that is linked by a, a line to a point on the hub has to travel that three hundred and sixty degrees at the same time. So if it takes a second for the hub to go round and the hub the circumference of the hub is an inch and the circumference of the the outside the wheel rim is a foot um it's had to travel a foot in the same time as the hub so yeah you get yeah, that right yeah. all i'm suggesting is that that because it's moving faster surely its vibration is higher it's fast it's a faster vibration it, it's just a thought i wanted to put out there <laughs> Yes. Yeah, as we're moving towards God, our vibration should be getting less. The closer we get to God, the less we should be vibrating until we merge with God and become the limpid diamond. That is very See what sound. I mean? That, so yeah, these, I people of the mean. New, these people of the new age who are telling you to raise your vibration, they've been led down a garden path by the same people that manipulated religion in previous times to lead gullible people down the garden path. The aim is not to raise your vibration and become even faster vibrators. It is actually to lower your vibration to zero. Just just thought I'd put that out there. Yeah, and and look, I, I, I really enjoyed reading this because it made a lot of sense to me, especially mm. when it said, you know, that, that the more you withdraw from God, 
the more you're withdrawing from one another. Mm, because that does, yeah, because it does, doesn't it? Like the spoke, yeah, the spoke that comes out from a hub, they do get further apart as they get towards the, con- the circumference. That's right. So, so the the more entrenched you are in the 3D world of being this separate entity, the less connected you are with not only everyone else but also with God. I, I think. That's uh, like um, being being really attached to the illusion is is keeping you separate in your own mind. And that section, which, by the way, comes from a writer called Ava Dorotheus, um, which, by the way, means gift of God. Dorothy is gift of God. Dorotheos. Theos is Greek for God. Doro, and, and Doro is give. So um, if we love God, then to the extent that we approach him through love of him, do we unite in love with our neighbours? And the closer our union with them, the closer is our union with God also. In other words, that's a two-way street. The, the connection goes from the hub to the circumference and back from the circumference to the hub. Whichever way you start from, provided that you're looking, you know, if you love thy neighbour, in other words... You're getting closer to God, and if you're getting closer to God, you will auto you will automatically be, love thy neighbour. But that's the one that people take literally, and then they end up saying, "Oh, we'll, we could throw the Bible away. It's not, isn't it? I'm not going to love my neighbour. He's playing music at three o'clock in the morning. How could I love you? Oh, forget it. I, I give up. But uh, you know, and this is why literal interpretations are rubbish, and why this part of Hispensky's book is fantastic because we explore the mysticism behind the shallowness of the the words that are trying to explain something that can't be explained. The mystical interpreters do a great job, but nobody reads them. No, because they're not they're not on Facebook. Did I say that out loud? Um, yeah, you did. The, the other thing too is I like the fact that it didn't say the spokes of the wheel were, were men or women. No, I know. Whatever. Because it isn't. It's everything. It's, it's everything. everything still, but it's yeah. the lives. It's the, that experience. Yeah. And remember, that, that, a rock, a rock has its life, and a table has its life, and you know, as we've all yeah. we've been through before, everything has consciousness. Not my favourite word, but everything has consciousness. We'll use that, and so the spokes represent them just as much as they represent human beings. Mm, yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I like it. It's it's a really good one. Yeah, and that was from the seventh century, so you know that's been around for quite some time. It's been around longer than that. Ask your first people. Uh, so we, we have a lot of quotes. They're all out of superconsciousness. You know, you know, there are a lot more quotes um, from superconsciousness and, and other things. You know, that P- Professor James and Uspensky has like used them, and he's like hitting them with hitting us with them one after one after one. But I think you know, from our point of view, from the point of view of this podcast and the recording that we're doing, we get the message that there is an absolute unity of thought between these early Christian mystics who were giving us the real foundation of Christianity and what Christianity actually meant and what it was trying to tell us before, you know, it it became a a tool of ownership and oppression and so on and so on, before it became shallow, let's say. And, and you know, I think we get the idea, don't we, that we believe, we we understand that they've all had, all these, all of these great early saints all had the same mystical experience from the viewpoint of Christianity, because that's where they were coming from. But other people have had the same experience, the exact same experience from elsewhere. 
And I, I like the fact that Aspensky, even though yeah, it's a lot to read, he puts example after example because what what might ring true and you know, make make sense to me might uh, be, be another one of those passages to someone else. So he's, he's really trying to make sure that you not get that. He may maybe if it's said this way, you'll get this, but it's the same message yeah. that he's pushing. Through. I mean, let, we'll just we'll just list some of the people that he you know he's quoted, and I'm not going to say what they said, but you know, Maxim Kapsakalovit, for example. Um, you know, the, who talks about the Holy Spirit, St. Basil the Great about the revelation of God. You know, we're talking about the same thing here. St. Saint, Theogonus, you know, um, where he talks, he actually comes straight out and says, look, look, Christians, there is a hidden mystery behind this. I'm telling you straight, and it's worth your while going and having a look for it, because that's where you're going to find real truth. St. Theogonus, um, there is some hidden mystery which proceeds between God and the soul. This is experienced by those who achieve the highest heights of perfect purity, you know, of love and faith. And, you know, so there's lots and lots of these, um, you know, of Clement of Alexandria, which is the second century. We're getting very, very close now to actual Christ Christianity itself at the time it's of the Christ. You know, you know, the second century is 100 and something AD. So we're looking at only 100 years after it actually happened. And I like what uh, Clement of Alexandria had. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, do, do say it then. You, you, I think it's worth pointing out. Yeah, go on it's, then. They're talking about, you know, philosophers trying to take truth and, and give it some explanation and how it gets distorted. It's like um, it, it likens it to doing a painting. If you do a painting depicting a scene, they use trickery, really, lines that, that go at certain angles to give depth. Yeah, so what we're talking about is parallax and perspective. Yeah. Yeah, so the painting itself, if you, if you just looked at it for the, the lines, it probably is still, well, it's obviously still flat, but it gives the, the fullness of, of three, three dimensions. Yeah. yeah, and so that's what philosophers are trying to do. They're taking something flat that they can't really uh, give you the full flavour of it, but they're giving you sort of a, a bit of a 3D image through the trickery of their words, or well, not trickery is the wrong word, but but through you know, their, their descriptions. They're trying to use yeah. descriptions. And to, the funny thing is, you know, you're quite right. I mean, and they're not trying to trick us. In fact, quite the opposite. They're trying to find a yeah. way to bring the truth. To, to tell us. But to do it, they're having to use parallax and to, to achieve a, a sense of perspective. <laughs> And each one has a different perspective. And with that, the thing is, that key word is perspective because basically it's a deformed shape. Yeah, showing it is. To give you that perspective. So uh, they can't, yeah, as we've said many times, they just can't hit the nail on the head. They can just give you some idea. Do you know when when you experience a projected hologram now, and they, they use them in amusement parks and theme parks, and they, they've used them in the War of the Worlds touring show. They had a hologram of Richard Burton when they first toured with that because Richard Burton had died and so on. People are amazed that they can walk around this projected image. It's like, it's, it's like wow, that's, that's mind-blowing. I should explain that in the Renaissance, when they rediscovered perspective, I, I have to say Renaissance, it is called Renaissance, for a reason, rebirth, what they had rediscovered was the kind of geometrical, mathematical representations that were known to the ancient Greeks. That's what they rediscovered. Uh. And, and so when painters started painting and putting in perspective, i.e. the lines of focus going into the distance and the lines seemingly getting closer together, which is actually, people were astonished. It's like, 
Wow, it's like stepping into reality. It's not a painting. It's suddenly a painting did not look like a flat two-dimensional image. It looked as though you could step into that world and walk to that horizon. And it, people were like knocked out by it, just like they are today when they're faced with a the 3D hologram. Yeah, it was yeah. it was a sensation in its day. But it still it still isn't the truth, is it? It's still just a distorted representation of the truth. It's a def or deformed, as it says in here, a deformed yeah, a deformed shape. The, yeah, uh, and the um, the interesting quote here, I think, is is worth pulling out. Is Clement of Alexandria says, "The truth cannot be expressed in our language." Uh, then would men cease to think that they possess truth. So, in other words, if you realise you can't tell the truth using language, everyone would stop thinking that they had the truth. It's like yeah. it, you, nobody has the truth because you can't express the truth in language. Well, people can have the truth. It's it's their expression of it that isn't the truth, so they should just shut up, basically. <laughs> That's right. And it brings me back to the, a couple of chapters ago when it said... Uh, you know, some it, it, taking on someone else's truth is is taking on a second lie. <laughs> yeah, taking on a second lie. Yeah, it is, and I love that. Yeah, if I believe you, if I believe you, I've now burdened myself with a second lie. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it says, then would men cease to think that they possess truth? Would cease to force others to accept their truth at any cost? would see that others may approach truth from another direction. The direction, Exactly yeah. as, they them, yeah, as they themselves approached it. Now, um, I just wanted to say, Spensky has put, you know, another direction in italics. It's like, you know, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter where you stand. Your expression isn't the same as the person that's standing next to you. No, no. But this, this idea of truth, you know, um, it's interesting because Spensky does take us to the bit where he says... And St. Clement, you know, well, Clement of Alexandria, who's talking, who you're talking about here, that's saying the inexpressibility of words. Well, we're thinking, OK, well, you'll, you'll be speaking in Greek, possibly some Coptic, maybe some Aramaic. I, you know, people spoke many languages when they were intellectuals then. Uh, but let's put it this way. Nothing could be further linguistically from your um tool of expression, i.e. Indo-European languages, than where we're going now, which is China. Ah, uh, yes. And China, linguistically, has no Indo-European use to it. It's why it's very, very difficult, or seemingly difficult, for Westerners to learn Chinese and Japanese and so on, because they don't have the same structural roots, which means that they don't have the same intellectual and even spiritual dimension. And yet... And yet, people that have taken the trouble and have done a good job at translating these mystical works from China suddenly discover that the Chinese philosophers are saying exactly the same thing as St. Teresa and Clement of Alexandria, St. Basil, and so on. Should I mention Dionysius the Areopagite? I just thought I well, would. Well, I think you should, because I certainly <laughs> I <did>. couldn't. <laughs> 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 well, there you go. But I, but honestly, but, but but you know, much more seriously, we you know, he does come on. I mean, I think it's great that Uspensky now is going to show you at a totally different part of the world, totally different yeah. part of the world. We have these Chinese mystical philosophers who are coming up with the same thing, and even earlier than Christianity. I mean, he starts off with Lao Tzu, 
obviously, I mean, very famous Chinese philosopher, but he's from the 6th century BC. If you want an idea of when that was in relation to Christianity, we're talking about 500 years BC, 500 years before the advent of Christ, much less um, the, the teachings. So you're looking at the same time of, well, it was before Alexander the Great. You're looking at the time of the Persian invasions of Athens that failed, <laughs> the, the great battles of Marathon and so on. And you're looking at the Peloponnesian War, Sparta versus Athens, and and all of these times, the great explosion of um, Athenian democracy. This is the birth of democracy in the West, or so we're led to believe, the Athenian experiment with democ democracy. And by the way, everybody that thinks democracy is great and wonderful and how this is this is how it should be. We should we should fight for democracy. Well, I wouldn't give my life for it. Even the Athenians hated it. It became a tool of the oligarchs that could just, if you were became a great orator, the greatest skill that you could get, and people used to spend billions, the equivalent of billions, learning this skill is oratory. Because if you could sway the mob, the mob will vote your way and you will get your way. Does that sound like modern democracy? Yes, it does. Democracy was worthless in Athens and it's worthless here. Um, but this is when Lao Tzu was writing much it predates Christianity, and I'm sure that you know the, there are many texts that are lost to us that we don't have access to that are even older. But Lao Tzu, shall we? Shall we go on to Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu? Yeah, let's do that. So, in essence, I, I would just sort of uh, encapsulate what I what I got from what Lao Tzu had to say. Mm. He's saying that if we can speak about it or we can write about it, it's not depicting. The eternal the thing. He's, uh, Tao, he's calling it well, he's Tao or Tao. Well, actually, actually, I still, I still say Tao because when I was growing up, just like Professor James and just like everybody that's translated, it was the Tao, and it's rather like Peking. It's called Peking, but now suddenly it's Beijing. Well, I don't know about dialects, but I will say this: that when we first went there. Our people that went to China, that wrote about China and came back and took, wrote about China, they weren't monks, they weren't stupid, they would, they would have been educated in public schools, you know. Let's put it this way, General Gordon went and invaded China with 5,000 British soldiers and got to the, you know, the, the forbidden city that nobody should be allowed in? Try stopping the British Empire in the 19th century. Up we went, in it, invaded it, owned it. Now, now let me tell you, if, they, if, if, if Gordon went into that city and said to the inhabitants, what do you call this place? And they said, oh, you're, this is Beijing. He wouldn't have written Peking. He would not have written Peking. He would have found a way of writing Beijing. Much the same as India, which we really owned by, by our long margin. We owned it. You turn up to that city, uh, that coastal city on the eastern coast, on the Indian Ocean, or the western coast rather, on the Indian Ocean, and you say, um, oh, now that we own this place, what do you guys call it? They didn't say Mumbai. They said Bombay, because if they'd said Mumbai, we wouldn't have been calling it Bombay. Now, God alone knows in this stupid, politically correct nonsense of a world what's gone on. But I'm here to tell you that for centuries, those cities were called Peking and Bombay, respectively, and, and so on. They are so they're such different words. And our people were not stupid. They might have been uh, monsters. But they weren't stupid monsters. 
Then they went there and they were told what that place was called. They would have transliterated it to English and it would have, they would have written what it sounded like. And it didn't sound like Beijing. So I'm just, you know, I just want to say that, you know, these, these translations, because these are old translations, they're likely to be as literal as we're going to get. Yeah. You know, yeah. these are going to be really good literal translations, as good as you're going to get. I mean, even that very first line that Uspensky uh, has quoted, I think is quite valuable. You know, he says, yes, it is. you know, to, to back up what you've just said, you know, the, the Tao, and I'm calling it the Tao, which can be expressed in words is not the eternal Tao. The name which can be uttered is not its eternal name. In other words, you can't even say the name of it and get it right. No. <laughs> The moment the, the moment you're saying the name, you're not describing it. <laughs> well, he then goes on to say, the Tao eludes the sense of sight, therefore it's called colourless. It eludes <laughs> the sense of hearing, and therefore it is called soundless. It eludes the sense of touch and is therefore called incorporeal. So in other words, you can't describe it by any of the senses that you have because it's kind of... Not there. <laughs> but I, li I like I like what the tricky little weasel then says. He says, and if you can blend all three of these <laughs> these together, they become unity. <laughs> well, well, it is because because yeah, the exactly. be because whatever word you put on it, nothing plus nothing plus nothing equals nothing. We've done this thing with infinity from a mathematical sense, and now Lao Tzu is doing it linguistically. Nothing plus nothing plus nothing is nothing. <laughs> and he's kind of doing the infinity thing. He's sort of saying yeah, it's everything it's and it's nothing and it's, yeah. uh, it doesn't matter how many you put together, you've still got the same thing. But You've always known, haven't you, the, the infinitely large and the infinitely small have to be exactly the same thing. Yep, because it's infinite. <laughs> it's... <laughs> So the words large or small, descriptively, are meaningless. You might as well say colourless, odourless, incorporeal, yes. And then he says, um, he doesn't know its name, its name I know not. Yeah. To designate it, I call it Tao. So in essence, he's, I think where we call it God, he's calling it yeah. Tao. Tao, yeah. I, I like how the transliteration becomes three letters, just like ours. He doesn't, he doesn't call it the, the, the divine source of all creation does he or any of this other new age claptrap he calls it the Tao and it's like you can take it or leave it because even the Tao is wrong <laughs> <laughs> and you know if it was written in Chinese it would probably be a, a, some sort of character you know, yeah it, will, it would be a character wouldn't it yeah yeah I so we've just we've just pulled it into a word um but endeavoring to describe it I call it great and I think that that sort of links back to Saint Therese, where she she called it enormous, you know, yeah. great, the, enormous, the, all yeah, these en enormously words. limpid diamond, mm. sovereign, sovereignly enormous, yeah. sovereignly limpid diamond. I like how having told us that it's it, you can't express it, Lao Tzu still then falls into the trap of every other philosopher by trying to. <laughs> he, he says, well, it's the, the law of Tao is its own spontaneity. The law of Tao is its own spontaneity. Tao in its unchanging aspect has no name. The mightiest manifestations of active force flow from Tao, which is all great, but, but you're still not yeah. telling us what it is. You can only describe what happens outside it. 
which we also know is a lie. <laughs> He, he does give it another good go here. He says, uh, yeah, Tau is a great square with no angles. angles yeah. A great sound, <laughs> which cannot be heard. A great image with no form. Like he's really trying to, to kind of give us some concept that it's, yeah. it's unattainable to encapsulate into some Rich. sort of image. And, it, and that kind of reminds me of this, this Zen Buddhist uh, concept of the sound of one hand clapping. Yeah, yeah. I've seen and people the, go, you know, try to go, like, tie themselves in knots trying to uh, explain that. Oh, but when you clap with one hand, you, you, you cause a change in the vibration of the air and this, that and the other. And just because we can't hear it with our ears, it does make a sound because sound is like, oh, no, that's not what they mean. They mean this. Yeah, they mean <laughs> they this. mean exactly this. Well, I, I think he, he, he actually also links with all the other saints and, and writers with this concept that the the um, limpid concept tau is eternally inactive and yet it leaves nothing undone yeah that what a phrase that is isn't it what that a is phrase really awesome that, yeah I, I just love this little analogy as well because i know we've had lots of analogies but some of lao tzu's in in translation, and I'm guessing they must have been amazing in the native language, the people who had that cultural mindset. Um, but he, he, I love this one. Who is there that can make muddy water clear? And obviously the implication is nobody can. But if allowed to remain still, it will gradually become clear of itself because the mud will sink to the bottom is what he means. So, yeah. so any amount of stirring it won't make it clear. Any action, in other words. Any activity. But if, you, yeah. but if you just leave the bowl on its own, it, you'll come back one day and suddenly that water is clear. Yeah. In, a, in action, in other words, you could argue that gravity has pulled the heavier mud to the bottom of the bowl. But frankly, once you're starting to do that, you need to get over yourself. That was it just an just analogy. A, it's just an analogy, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. You're kind of missing the point. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I like where he goes. From that, he says, the pursuit of book learning brings about a daily increase in knowledge. The practice yep. of Tao brings about a daily loss, a loss of ignorance. Yeah, which, which just, implies that your, knowledge that. Is, yeah, your, your increase of knowledge is actually an increase of ignorance. <laughs> knowledge, <laughs> exactly. is in, knowledge is ignorance. <laughs> yeah, exactly I, right. In, exactly in fact, right. I love in it. Fact, in fact, I, I thought as we were, you know, as I was reading this chapter, as going through, and I am going to do it, I'm going to dig out my uh, sayings of Lao Tzu again and read it again because I, I get great delight from it. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's just bang, bang, bang. Practical inaction and there is nothing which cannot be done. And by the way, New Ages, here's one for you. Those who know do not speak. Those who speak do not know. Tell me again, Tere, how I should be raising my vibration. <laughs> As if you hadn't made your, your sentiments clear in the past. <laughs> I thought I had, but you never know. Somebody might have missed it. <laughs> <laughs> they might have just tuned in. <laughs> but he says, he, he basically then says, look, choose your path and yeah. just let it happen. Um, <laughs> leave all things to take their natural course and do not interfere. All things in nature work silently. They do. I think he's thrown a, a bit of a hand grenade in, uh, in for people as well. 
imagine that you had ambition and you wanted to create a business empire or do anything. You had an ambition to do something. Lao Tzu tells you how you're going to get, how you're going to achieve that, and he's rather helpful in the way that he does it. He says, "Practice inaction. Practice inaction, and there is nothing which cannot be done." Well, thanks for that. <laughs> thanks for that one, Lao Tzu. <laughs> I don't think he means that you just sit on your dot and do nothing. I think he does. I think he does. Uh, I think he's. I think what he's I know, saying. I'm, a, I'm only teasing you. I know he yeah, doesn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that went right no, over I, my head. I'm just. Um, no, I'm just. I'm just going by how how people will into. People are very shallow, and they will interpret those things literally. Yeah. And then they'll say, "Oh, he's talking. He's talking rubbish." A bit like the one hand clapping. You know, it's a very simple thing. I would give you an example that happened to me this week, and I spoke to you about this earlier. I think this is the sort of thing he's saying. When I uh, I went to the, the shopping centre to get money for my cleaners who were arriving the next day and uh, pay them uh, with cash. So I had three things I wanted to do, go to Aldi, um, get myself some lunch and get the money. I was going to do the money in Aldi at the same time. And when I got there, I was at Aldi and I thought, no, I just – just had this note, go and get your lunch first. So I just did that. I didn't sit there and think about it or, or whatever. And on the way there, I passed the, the auto bank. So I thought, no, I'll grab my money there. Just This is just following just this flow. And as I came back, my cleaner saw me in the supermarket and I said, hi, how are you going? And look here, take the money. I've just, just picked it out of the bank and I you know, take it now and I'll see you tomorrow. Now, it turns out when she got to the cash register, she didn't have her wallet with her. And it was only that I'd given her this money. But what I'm saying is she didn't do this active active thing of I have to have money, whatever. She just assumed that everything was taken care of. And, in fact, yeah. it was, even though it wasn't yeah. her action. But on top of that, the it, you know, it, it's worth saying it was like she did have an intention that she didn't act upon. Her intention was to buy some groceries from the store. Yeah. The inaction came about um, from not scurrying about looking for the money before she went out. And it still turned out that she that her intention came to her. This is what is known as manifestation in the modern world. That's now. exactly right. And lot and lots of very attractive young women will tell you how, how you can learn manifestation from them and spend hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, and they'll teach you how to make all of your dreams come true. But everything they teach you will involve you taking some form of action. They don't know the secret, but Lao Tzu did. Yeah, and then you just gave us a practical demonstration yeah. of it in a, of it happening. Yeah, and that inaction was. I need to go shopping. I'm going shopping with the intention that I will come back with the groceries. I know not how. Yeah, and and even for me, it wasn't. Oh well, I had my plan. I'm going to stick to it. You play. Yeah, you played your part in her plan. That's right. Without realizing it. Yeah, with with also suited you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it was amazing, but that's what I think he means. This. this Doing nothing is set your course and then just, just do what you are kind of feeling is the thing to do. Yeah. I was moving on to Chuang Tzu because I love yes, this. I like this because... Ah, oh, yes. You, know, you cannot speak of ocean to a well frog. In other words, if somebody is living in such a constricted way and is with a, such a constricted thought pattern... You can't even speak. You might as well not even try to uh, use the inadequacies of language to try and try and tell them something. When you've got these people who are so fixed in their perception of reality that, you know, 
that nothing you say is going to change it. What's the point? They won't get no it, and they, and they will never achieve the experience of it either. Because the you know the other one, the creature of a narrower sphere is how he describes it. I won't go on and describe people who are new agers and pagans, shall I, to consider them, and also the the militant atheists and and even stupider and they do exist militant agnostics um we, i won't i won't describe them i needn't mention them by name need i to, to, as i think people i think are, you could probably being, let that one as, slide this time yeah okay you know because you know <laughs> i you wouldn't want them to be described as creatures of a narrow sphere would you but anyway no but you cannot speak of tau to a pedagogue <laughs> and i looked up pedagogue Oh, a did teacher, you not know what it especially was? a strict pedantic. Of course, I didn't. Uh, a teacher, especially a strict or pedantic one. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you can't speak of so, who's so restricted with their way of thinking. His scope is too restricted. And I love this. But now that you have emerged from your narrow sphere and have seen the great ocean, you know your own significance, and I can speak to you of great principles. In other words, the mere fact that you're reading my book means that you are not one of these narrow, <laughs> narrow-sphered people. I've got insignificance. That's changed. Well, we are. We would know our own, we would know our significance, not insignificance. And you've had the experience. Once you emerge from mm. the narrow sphere, you know that you are um, the enormous, sovereignly limpid diamond. You, in other words, yeah. are the ocean in the drop and the drop in the ocean. Mm. So they've had a typo in the, the um, 1920 version that they've picked up. Dimensions are limitless, time is endless, conditions are not invariable, terms are not final. In other words, the same old thing that we've heard a million times. But the point of this chapter is that these people, these great philosophers from across the world and in different ages, they've all come to the same conclusion and they're all trying to explain exactly the same that that Spensky in his early part of the book demonstrated mathematically as a truth doesn't matter which language you use whether it's mathematics Chinese Greek Russian whatever it's the same thing we're trying to express yeah and it says only from subjective knowledge is it possible to proceed to objective knowledge and and that's the truth as close as the truth are you going to get as you're going to get, yeah. The name of Tao is only adapted for convenience sake. Pedestrianation and chance are limited to material existences. How can they bear upon the infinite? In other words, there's no such thing as good luck and bad luck. I love this. Are you ready for this? You might have this. The Tao cannot be existent. If it were existent, it could not be non-existent. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So for it not to exist, it would have to first exist. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it, I mean, and then he comes back to the usual, the usual thing that we're now getting tired of. Tao is something beyond material existences. It cannot be conveyed either by words or by silence. Ah! Yes, what can you do? Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Nothing, which is what they're saying. <laughs> saying you can do yeah. nothing. And then, of course, I mean, that's great. So we've had two of the Chinese philosophers and Spensky, he's obviously been like, you know, He's got he's got the shivers now. It's like oh, oh I've got to get onto her. I've got to get onto her. She's my hero. Oh I love her. Oh I, oh she's my hero. I've got well, to get onto her. He loves them. Mabel and, and Helen. Helena. Helena Blavatsky. I've got to get to Helena. She'll never forgive me if I don't. So we come on to the Theosophists. Well, Peter, I think we're going to leave it there because we've got lots more to go in this chapter, and I think we can start next week with uh, Helena and 
Pauline. So look, thanks so much for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation today and I look forward to continuing it next podcast. No, it's been brilliant as always. Yeah, it has. And so thanks again and thanks everyone for listening.